Pastor Josh read from Second uh, Timothy 3, where the incarnation is called the mystery of God- godliness. Now, right off the bat, that does not mean what I'm going to say next. Uh, mystery, the word of mystery, as it appears in the apostolic writings, is different than the way we normally use it in everyday life. But we certainly have to agree that in a, the, way, the way we live and understand life as we look at the story of the Incarnation is incredibly mysterious. Would you not agree? Over the last couple of weeks, I've tried to uh, illuminate that quandary, that mystery. We looked at Micah 5, where the prophet Micah spoke of some who was going to be someone who was going to be born in Bethlehem, who came from old. <laughs> you know, don't miss that idea. Born in Bethlehem, but who came from everlasting who came from the ancient of days. Of course, we noted that that is speaking of the dual nature of Jesus Christ, that he's God and man. Matthew did the same thing when we looked at Matthew's account last week, where he spoke of the fact that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit giving him his full and complete deity. But he was born of a virgin, that he might be fully man, fully God, fully man in the same person. It's, it's indeed mind-boggling. Had it not been in the Word of God, we would question it. We would wonder about how in the world this can happen. I'm actually going to invite you to go back to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look again at this exactly the same passage, but there was an element in there that I wanted to keep uh, for today um, uh, because it's just, it was just too much to handle last Sunday, but I don't want us to miss the, the, uh, the point that Matthew is making. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. I'm reading verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph <clears throat> being a just and un, uh, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Before you lift your eyes too far from your text, I'd ask you to look down again, particularly at verses 21 and following. There's somewhat of a interesting uh, point being made by Matthew here. Uh, do you not find, as I do, that when you read Scripture, and you've read Scripture a lot, and particular passages a lot, there's certain things that you just might miss. And we need help by the Holy Spirit to, to uh, focus on, on, on what he wants us to see. And we might read it quickly. We might have heard this passage read uh, at plays and Sunday school concerts and, and, and church services. You may read it in your own devotions. But I want you to notice something about the naming of Jesus. That's where your eyes should focus. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the angel of the Lord is telling Joseph this. You shall name a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then he explains the meaning of Jesus, or Yeshua in the Hebrew means God saves. Or here, as Matthew says, God will save his people from their sin. And if you glance down to verse 25, we read that uh, Joseph did not know his wife until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, so far, so good. The angel says, Joseph... You're to name your boy Jesus. And a few verses down we read, and he named him Jesus. Sounds typical of Joseph, a devout and upright man, obeying what God has said. But in the middle, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah, from hundreds of years before, is quoted as saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. My first question when I saw that, I said, who's going to call Jesus Emmanuel? His parents were said to call him Jesus. And as I go back into Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it seems very explicit that the parents are to call his name Emmanuel. Now you know I'm digging. And I hope you don't sense, sense that this is making a trite argument. But his parents were told to call him Jesus. They did call him Jesus, but they also called him Emmanuel. Why? Why the two names. We understand the naming of children, but why the two names? We know the meaning of the names. Jesus, Savior. He will save his people from their sin. 
We know the meaning by God's word, what, I, what Emmanuel means. Emmanuel means God with us. So, what drew my attention to this passage was why the two names and what is the relationship between the two names? Why the two names and what is the relationship between the two names? My fear as I say that this morning is that some of you will think that this is kind of a very heady philosophical message and uh, you can just get back to thinking about the basics of, Christ, of Christmas. And, and I warn you about that. I, I, I don't, have no intention of being heady and, and philosophical. I think you're going to find that this becomes very real. This is so real, you're going to touch it. You're going to taste it. You're not going to know exactly what I'm talking about. It sounds like I'm starting at sort of some point an academic might start at, but it's not at all where I'm at. So hang in there with me and set that, that critique aside. The, the thing that we're asking of the text of Scripture is what is the relationship between the two names, Jesus and Emmanuel? It could be that the name Jesus points to what Jesus did. And the name Emmanuel points to what that looks like in the end. It, it could mean that Jesus fulfills the old covenant demands. And Emmanuel, the name, fulfills the new covenant expectations. It's still kind of up here for you, isn't it? That's okay. Let the plane fly. It's got lots of gas. In other words, the question I asked of the scripture, does Emmanuel actually look what salvation ought to look like? Is the name Emmanuel really what the end goal of salvation is. I put a paragraph in my notes that I'd like Donna to put up on the, on the, on the uh, slide. And uh, this would be a way, it's a long paragraph, several sentences, and I think it's easier for you to see it as I read it. But this is what I believe the scriptures to teach that within the context of the Old Testament repeatedly God promises to be present with his people to bless them and to keep them repeatedly in the Old Testament all types of symbols of the Old Covenant were intended to point us towards the fulfillment of those promises which is the New Covenant to fulfill the demands of the old, a Savior had to be born as a man to pay the just penalty for sin. His salvation began with him dwelling with mankind in visible flesh, which all points to an ultimate expression 
of his intimate, personal, sin-eradicating, hope-filled, eternal joy forever. If I was doing a paper, that would be my thesis. That these names have a relationship. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law and the old covenant by dying for his people. And his name, Emmanuel, points us to a greater fulfillment of God with us, which goes beyond words description in its beauty and its glory. I hope you'll come with me as I go through this as quickly and concisely, but as clearly as possible. So with that, would you pray with me, please? Help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit to clearly see the relationship between your son's name, Jesus, and his name, Emmanuel. For in that relationship, we will find possibly the most encouraging promise that you have given to us in your word. So I pray that your truth won't get lost in my inabilities and my weakness to really say this the way it should be said. And I hope that your truth won't get lost in our weakness to comprehend the deep things of God. So both preacher and people need help now, Lord. So come, Holy Spirit, and give help and illumination. And I pray this for Jesus' sake and our ultimate good. Amen. tried desperately to put myself in your chairs this morning and say, what if I was listening to what I had just scribbled in some of my notes? And I might ask the question, why should I listen for another few minutes? And as I was contemplating that question, not having received a clear answer, Almost immediately and almost uh, without thought, a song popped into my head from my Sunday school days. And I'll spare you the pain of me singing it. And the chorus goes more, more about Jesus. More more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. And that clearly has become my goal. That you would leave here having more understanding of Jesus who died for you and loves you and the tremendous plan that he has 
for those whom he died for. And that is all found, I believe, in the relationship of the two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. I'm going to look first at the person and the meaning of Emmanuel. We know what the scripture says, but I want us to see it in, in its context in a deeper way. And then I'm going to look secondly at the signs of Emmanuel that appear. And I'm not going to go through the whole scripture and also to where it's pointing to us today. So first of all, let's look at the person and the meaning of Emmanuel. You might want to flip back to Isaiah 7:14 and just see it before your eyes. This is what Matthew quotes. When we have a quote in the New Testament, it's always wise to go back to the old and get the context. <clears throat> As you look at the promise that a virgin will conceive and bear a child named Emmanuel, God with us. As you see that promise, the context is that there's a king in Israel by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz is made to understand that Israel is being threatened by the enemies. Both Assyria and Babylon are positioned to come and bring Israel under captivity. Ahaz as a king has a choice. And he makes the wrong choice. He chooses to align himself with other foreign armies. With Egypt. The prophet Isaiah warns him about that. Don't align yourself with these foreign armies. Trust in God. Trust in the God of Israel. He says, Ahaz, ask God for a sign that what I just said is true. Ahaz didn't ask. He says, Ahaz, if you will ask for a sign, what you will see is a boy will be born in Israel. They'll name him Emmanuel, God with us. And that will prove to you that if you put your trust in me, I will deliver you. The story doesn't end well. But I want you to see something about the name Emmanuel from its original context. The word Emmanuel only appears three times in the Bible. And this is the first time. Isaiah was communicating to Ahaz and the nation of Israel. And this is an important thought. That the deliverance of God and the presence of God share the same reality. They say, when you say God is present... God is here. The reality that's being spoken of is God is going to deliver you. Matthew picks this up and applies this to Jesus. And says his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. 
But by joining the name Jesus and Emmanuel together, you now see what it means is the presence of God means deliverance from sin. It's both the same meaning. The presence of God in the Bible means deliverance. It's just not an idea that, oh, God is here. He's sitting beside me. He's in me. He's talking to me. It's, it, it extends far beyond that. Emmanuel, God with us, is equated to the same reality God will deliver us. This type of prophecy is hard for us to understand because it's, it's only used in the Bible. And some people make false ideas. They'll read Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew and they say, well, that's two different interpretations. It's not. This type of prophecy where the prophet, even though he didn't understand, was looking at the immediate future and then the far future is a specific type of prophecy in the Old Testament. And I've wrestled over the years trying to explain it, and the way I explain it is this way, and I don't think it's like any illustration, the best illustration, but uh, just for the sake of uh, uh, trying to understand this better, let's pretend that you and I were visiting, say, the Rocky Mountains, and I wanted your picture. And I wanted your picture to communicate something. So in front of my camera, I position you, and I have you in my lens. But in order to communicate the message, I position you so just behind you and in the way distant is the highest peak in the Rockies. I'll take you back to grade five. What mountain is that? Anybody? Robson, if I, if I heard it. So there's your picture in the immediate scene, and behind I got Mount Robson. Everybody would see that, and they would have an idea what was going on. That's how the prophets in the Old Testament wrote. They would write, and they would, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pro prophesy something in the immediate. But through the revelation of God's Word and through the corroboration of the New Testament, we would see what was in also in their eyes in the background. So between Isaiah and Matthew, we have a picture. Isaiah was able to see what was in the foreground, a boy in Israel being born named Emmanuel. When Matthew comes uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, yeah, but behind that was also another, another part of the portrait was Jesus. A little boy in Israel was in the foreground, but Jesus was in the background. And we say, well, that's two different prophecies. No, it's not the same prophecy. Why? They're both saying the same thing. The presence of God will deliver his people. Isaiah 7, 14 and Matthew 1 are saying exactly the same thing. 
One happened in the immediate sense, in the, in, the, in, in, in the earthly sense, and the other was pointing to an ultimate reality, both saying the same thing. The presence of God will deliver his people. And that's the message of Emmanuel. I think I've thought about this recently on this topic. I thought, how many times you and I have prayed? We've had a prayer request come across, and we, we pray in our minds, Lord, be with so-and-so as they go and do such-and-such. Do you ever pray that way? Be with Johnny as he drives to Edmonton. What are we asking for? God to sit in the back seat? God to talk to him, keep him awake? Of course not. In our heart of hearts, we know that the presence of God brings blessing. The presence of God brings deliverance. The presence of God brings grace. That's what we're praying for. And that's the theme of the Scripture. God with us is not just a, uh, a, a re an experiential reality that, oh, I have God beside me. It means that God is present in grace and in power and in glory and in deliverance and in salvation. Emmanuel, the name is so pregnant with, with, with meaning, it ought to instill tremendous encouragement in us. The relationship between Jesus and Emmanuel is a relationship that God saves in his presence with us. We sing it in our Christmas carols. And we don't even think about it. Or at least we haven't. We will from now on. O come, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. The writer of the, of the hymn understands that it's the presence of God that brings deliverance. Thus the names Jesus and, 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 and Emmanuel have a, have a significant relationship that Matthew doesn't avoid. Where do we see this concept? Now I'm only going to cover what, uh, three or four in the Bible. This idea of God present with his people bringing deliverance extends through the whole Bible and it points to an eschatological eschatological future that is so encouraging for us. But think with me in your minds, you probably don't have to turn there, to Genesis 3 verse 8, where we read that after Adam and Eve sinned, it says, God was walking in the cool of the day, and he called out, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? We're hiding. We found out we were naked. Who told you you were naked? What is being portrayed there is 
the opposite of a circumstance that was occurring and stopped occurring. It seemed obvious that God and Adam and Eve walked together in perfect communion and sin came into the world and suddenly that sin separated man and God. God, in a sense, was not present anymore with Adam. In fact, to emphasize it, he was banished from the garden, as we all are, banished from God's presence. God was no longer with him. And God called Abraham and raised up a people he called them Israel to the glory of God. And he said to them, he said, he wanted to, them to build a tabernacle. And what was the purpose? Turn back to Exodus 25. We have time to do this. Exodus 25, verse 8. Exodus 25, verse 8. So in Israel, God instituted a system of worship that included the building of a sanctuary, a temple. And notice what verse, verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. There's a God who is taking the initiative and seeking to restore his presence with his people. And so, without going through the whole Old Testament account, you will know how that God did that. But there was a problem in that. And the problem was that only one person, once a year, could experience God with him. And that was the high priest. In fact, when he went into this tabernacle, he had to go through a whole series of sacrificial offerings and go through a whole series of, wor of, 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 of worship. And then he was faced with a veil that no one was allowed to enter but him. No one. Only he could go once a year. And he went in with fear and trembling. They used to tie a cord onto his ankle because if he went behind that temple, into the, that, that curtain behind the presence of God, and he, something wrong happened, he hadn't made the right sacrifices, his, something was wrong in his heart, he would die instantly. The people would stop hearing the bells on the bottom of his robe, and they could drag him out by his feet. Yeah, God wanted to dwell with his people, but it's not. It's not the way you and I would want to live life, I hope. One person, once a year, under such fear. Now fast forward. You know where I'm going with this. Fast forward. Jesus comes. And he says, and John writes that, God became flesh and he tabernacled. That's a word that's used in the original language. He dwelt. 
God became flesh and dwelt. He tabernacled with us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and of truth. And Jesus tabernacled on earth. He, he was God with us. God was with Israel two millennia before that, but one guy, one time, time a year. But now God is with human beings on this planet. And this Jesus went to the cross having lived a perfect life and dying a death that he should have never had to die as a sinless man. Now in the moment that he died and gave up his spirit, something happened in the temple. You remember what it was? The curtain was torn, top to bottom. Suddenly the less ideal situation of one man once a year, the temple now has been opened. It's still not perfect. It's still not perfect. So Christ ascends back to heaven. And he says, there's something better going to happen than this. I'm going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And he will live in you. John 14. Forever. Let's do something better. As someone has said in, in the title of their book, Jesus within you is better than Jesus beside you. So we have this, this evolution, if you will, and I use the word carefully, this, this evolving of this idea, God with us in a tabernacle, one person, one time a year. Jesus now is in on the earth. But Jesus says, this still isn't the best. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. And what has literally happened since then is God the Holy Spirit has made you, your individual body, a temple of dwelling. He is dwelling with you. He is Emmanuel in your body. And not only that, he's in this local church. Paul says that you, the church, the local church, he was addressing Corinth, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet, with an old singer from the 60s, my mind goes, is, is, is that all there is? <laughs> I mean, this is great. God with me is great. God with you is great. But... If I could take the time, I would list a hundred things this morning why it isn't great. And partly and mostly is because I still have sin. There are times I don't commune with God in intimacy. There are times that, that I know there's more to come. So turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. 
I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, or any more. For the former things have passed away. The Bible portrays for us the fact that it's been God's desire to dwell with his people. It happened in sort of a way in, the, in Israel. It was even better when Jesus came. It's even better now that the Holy Spirit indwells his church. But, oh, beloved, there is an Emmanuel coming, an Emmanuel experience coming that defies all that. It's a time when sin is eradicated. The consequences of sin are no more. Everything is perfect. And God is with his people. In other words, the role of Jesus to save his people will be finally seen in its completeness when God is with his people in perfection forever. Notice the language. Notice the language of John as he writes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Christian, this is covenantal language. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant in reality. This is what we talk about every time we have communion, the new covenant supper. This is what's been promised all through the Bible. Forty times at least in the Bible, we have this anticipated promise that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He will pay, He will pay God's demands for you and I to be included in a new relationship called the New Covenant. But what I'm sharing with you this morning is to take that thought, the New Covenant, one step further. It's all summed up in its completeness if you understand that the new covenant in its ultimate sense is God dwelling with his people. It's Emmanuel being experienced without sin, without the problem of, of the flesh, without the problem of any kind of inhibition. It's God's people dwelling with God in a place that the hymn writers used to call Emmanuel's land. That's the new covenant. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the new relationship. So when Matthew wrote that they shall call his name Jesus in obedience to the prophet who said they'll call his name Emmanuel, do you understand why he was relating the two ideas together? 
that it took the salvation provided by God himself in order to gain for his people an experience of God with us forever and ever. The reality of the new covenant. The reality of the new covenant and all its promises were paid for not by you and not by me. We did nothing. The only thing we ever contributed to the promises of the new covenant is our own sin that needed salvation. But God in His sovereign grace and mercy sent His Son Jesus Christ to die for our sins so that the promises of the new covenant, which can be summed up in one word, I will be your God, you will be my people, Emmanuel, God with us. The promises of the new covenant could be ours. And do you know that we say that every time we have communion? Think of what we say. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It took a Savior to shed His blood in order for us to receive the promises of the new covenant. So what's the relationship between Jesus and the name Emmanuel? Jesus describes the price in order for us to receive the promise of Emmanuel. Does that make sense? Jesus is the price for us to experience Emmanuel. God's plan of God with us doesn't stop at Christmas. It didn't start at Christmas, and it doesn't stop at Christmas. We could say with all certainty as we enter into this Christmas week, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So that's my first point of application. Let's be careful in our celebration, in our rightful, rightful celebration of Christmas. Let's be careful not to portray this as the end. Christmas is only the beginning. The best is yet to come. That means that if I brought my camera to your home and took a picture of your activities, forgetting COVID rules right now, you're all gathered together. There's the tree over here. You're all gathered together around the tree. You're in laughing and enjoying each other. It's, the air in the room is just warm with love and affection. You're eating and feasting. Your times together seem like they'll never end. 
and my camera. I hope that's the foreground of the picture. I hope that those who have eyes to see and hearts to believe will see that there's a picture in the background, a Mount Robson picture of God's people gathered together around the throne, feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, enjoying the fellowship, casting crowns before the Savior, and worshiping Him. My challenge is, will that be in my home? And will it be in yours? Will you be able to project behind all your gatherings and fellowship the fact that this is only a foretaste of what is to come for those who are in Christ? That there is yet a Mount Robson experience that defies the joy that we're experiencing today. As you gather on Christmas Day, may you be able to say to your families and to your loved ones, to your spouses, the best is yet to come. Would you join me as we pray? Without you, Jesus, there would be no Emmanuel. Had you not come to live the life that we should have lived, if you not had come to die the death we indeed should have died, if you had not come and given us your Holy Spirit, there would be no hope of Emmanuel. And there would be no place called Emmanuel's land. Lord, we don't want to show contempt for the wonders of the gathered assemblies that we will have this Christmas in your will. Those are wonderful to be with family, to eat and to laugh, to share gifts. But Lord, it's only a foretaste of what's to come. We look forward as your church to the day when your temple will come and dwell on this earth where you will make all things new and you will dwell with us and we will dwell with you and no more sin no more wickedness no more sorrow no more loss no more pain the former things will have passed away and you make all things new With the aid of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enable us to keep 
those thoughts in our minds. That we would set our love and affection on those things. Where you are. And may you receive the glory. And we need your good. We desperately need your good. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, I want to just communicate to you uh, I can't find the verse, but I know it by heart. So stand up. And may this be God's blessing upon you as you're dismissed. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, now watch the words, be with your spirit. God bless you and have a great Lord's Day.